Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Happy Election Day, everyone. To kind of give you all a reprieve from all the news we're going to be inundated with today, I figure... I would continue with the thin green line theme we're having here at the podcast this week. Today's guest is retired Lieutenant Wayne Saunders, who served many years in the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. And here's a little bit about him. Wayne Saunders is a retired Lieutenant Conservation Officer from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department, an honored and celebrated wildlife law enforcement officer overseeing patrols in the northern reaches of New Hampshire from Mount Washington to the Canadian Canadian border, he still considers natural resource protection a passion and calling. And he first became a so-called cowboy of the woods, which he'll talk about at length in this interview, in 1995, describing it as a dream job to work as a game warden. He served as a conservation officer for 23 years, catching poachers, doing search and rescue mission, responding to wild animal complaints, backing up local and state police, and many other things in the course of his duty. He retired in May of 2018 and soon began to dabble in podcasting. And also throughout his tenure as a conservation officer, and actually towards the end of his tenure, working in the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. He did make some appearances on the Animal Planet show, Northwoods Law. He wasn't really seen on the program. I think I saw him once or twice, but he would always be listed as the dispatch because he was the lead guy coordinating everything. So he did make some appearances there. And he's been really excelling in podcasting on his Warden's Watch podcast and also the Thin Green Line, which is a subsidiary podcast that he co-host with John Norris, who was our guest yesterday. And the podcast has done tremendously. He told me some of the numbers they get, and I'm just amazed by it. But it's not surprising because it's such a unique topic, hearing from game wardens, current past and present, and much more. And if you go fishing and hunting, you just know how important it is to be on the good side of these law enforcement officers, these game wardens, and they're not our enemies. I think that's a common misconception that is often wielded. Every game warden I've encountered has always been nice to me, even when they ask me for my license, which I proudly show them, have no qualms with showing them because I am always up to date. There's actually a really funny story I shared with Wayne throughout the course of our chat about how two uh, Virginia conservation officers mistook my dad and I for grandpa and granddaughter, which was really funny during free fishing days when we were teaching kids and how to fish at Lake Cook in Alexandria here in the the area. So that was really funny. But no, anytime I've seen a conservation officer, I've always chatted with them. I've always been cooperative. Like I know the problems with poaching. I would never do that. I would never not fish without a license either. And that's extremely important because they're there to make sure that the resources that we use and potentially harvest if it's a game animal or a fish you decide to put in take and and take home with you they're there to ensure that 
we follow the rules, that we know exactly what we're doing, that we're not taking more than our lot, and to also keep us safe. In many states, actually, across the country, game wardens act even in a more official and powerful capacity than some regular law enforcement officers, which I learned, I think, in the state of Georgia. That's the case in a few others. But they're our friends. They're not our foes. They're really awesome. And retired game officers like Wayne and John are trying to use their retirement to educate people about just the thin green line, conservation as a whole, the benefits to hunting and fishing, and also just use their expertise and their time on the force to even advocate for controversial types of hunting or management to be in the various different states of bigger game animals. And Wayne recounted a lot of interesting stories from his time in the force, some crazy moose stories if you're interested. And now we will go to the Northeast and visit with Wayne Saunders. Check it out. Let me know what you think. We're delighted to have Wayne Saunders, host of Warden's Watch, a very popular, very cool podcast featuring people representing uh, servicemen and or law enforcement, uh, men and women uh, serving the Thin Green Line. And he also is a past uh, participant in the Northwoods Law Show on Animal Planet, if you guys don't recognize him from there, but he did spend some time there. And he's also uh, formerly with the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. And we're so excited to have him join us here on the podcast and then this corresponding video. So Wayne, really good to cross-pollinate with you. It's been so much fun to get to know you and John Norris uh, across these last few months and uh, talk about different subjects. But we're going to talk about the East Coast today, uh, not so much of Western issues like what we got into in uh, your podcast on the Thin Green Line podcast. But I'm really excited to speak with you and hear what you're thinking about um, as it relates to hunting, fishing, conservation here on our side of the country. Oh, that's, that's a great thing about working with John. He handles the West Coast, I handle the East Coast, and together we, we take in the whole country. So it's been a, an awesome partnership and a collaboration with John, and I've really enjoyed it. So, But yeah, the East Coast is, uh, is an awesome place to live. I mean, we got mountains, we got uh, not as much as the West, because I, I guess when I look out there, I just see like elk, and I've been elk hunting, and I know those <laughs> big mountains, and we've got big mountains in remote areas. We have wilderness areas in New Hampshire. But we just don't have those big representations of big elk. I guess, I guess elk's the big thing. But then, of course, I said elk. And then uh, I just did an interview with the deputy chief out in uh, Idaho. And he's like, oh, we got Rocky Mountain sheep. We got this sheep. We got that sheep. We got lions. We got... <laughs> I was like, okay, you can stop any time now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we do have actually quite a bit of biodiversity. And I don't know if this would ever happen in New Hampshire, but all across the East Coast here in Virginia, we do have elk coming back. So um, until right. they establish, I don't know if you guys have reclaimed coal fields in New Hampshire um, or no. up that way in New England, but if you We're guys... Yeah, the Grand That's right. But it, elk may be starting. I mean, I think the furthest north is Pennsylvania, but still a little mm-hmm. bit of a hike to New Hampshire. But we do have some cool, cool stuff. And you guys have the bobcat. I don't know if Canadian lynx. You have moose, though. Moose yeah. is not something. I mean, you do find it a little bit on the right. West Coast. But I think of, like, moose closer to Canada and closer to New mm-hmm. Hampshire and Maine. Because uh, that's what people, where people go hunting for moose, they go to New England. They go to Maine. They go to New Hampshire. Yes, totally. I totally agree. And our moose population actually has taken a, a really bad hit mm. due to winter tick. And Maine's population in the southern end, 
Moose generally is a cold weather animal, so the, the colder the better, and certainly the winter tick has taken a toll on them. Uh, moose season used to be our busiest season here in northern New Hampshire. I've, I've never had call pending calls pending as a game warden except during moose season in northern New Hampshire, and it was it's been crazy, and it was so much fun, and you got up really early, and you worked really late at night, and you were just running on coffee, and I loved every second of it. It was just uh, some really intense investment investigations a lot of them and it was just my favorite time and then to watch the population decrease of course activity decreases with that too and when I retired uh, our moose hunt wasn't anything compared to what it had been in its height so it's kind of done but we still see we still have a a thriving population so to speak it's just going to be on the lesser side you can still come to northern New Hampshire and see a moose uh, generally uh, we still have a moose season. We hunt about 51 animals right now, currently. I personally think the moose are probably on a steady population base right now, maybe growing a little. I think the winter tick has taken a toll due to the drought that we've had on the East Coast lately and, and a few other things. Lack of moose uh, actually helps kill ticks because they have less less moose to hang on and, and winter over. But it, it was a horrible, horrible thing to see these ticks. We actually had to put down quite a few moose. I think we had one year we had to put down 13 moose. And when you shot them, because it'd be there like three days leaning against a tree. And when you shot them, they wouldn't bleed. And it was hmm. because all their blood was in the ticks. The ticks had Ooh. just clung to them and sucked all their blood out. And there was about a pint left within the moose when we actually had to put them down. One of our biologists looked into it, and he's like, yeah, there, there may be a pint of blood in that moose. You think about the size of the moose and how much blood is in those ticks. It's just, uh, it, it was a pretty gross thing, too. Um, when you get close to them, you can just see the, the carcasses moving uh, because there's so many ticks on them. It was a pretty sad state. So a that, horrible way to die. So for Yeah. A, I mean, I, I know across the cervid populations, I mean, obviously with the limes tick, um, I think I'd seen some Northwoods Law episodes. I don't know if it was prior to your retirement or after, but they would talk about how some of the moose would succumb to this winter tick. And I'm like, that's a horrible way to go out. Um, and it mm. seems like tick like to gravitate towards uh, any species of the deer family. Um, and that's really weird how, how that is. But uh, I want you to talk more so about what led you to become a game warden and talk about your tenure uh, working for New Hampshire's um, State Wildlife Agency. Well, at age six years old, I actually had an experience in the woods. My father was grouse hunting and a game warden actually came up and checked us out of like thin air. It seemed like he stepped out to check my father's hunting license while we were grouse hunting. And we actually left from our house. So we didn't have a vehicle that, you know, identified that we would be here or anything like that. So I'm not sure if he was out for a walk in the woods or had a a general idea this was a good spot to go but just uh, materialized out of nowhere and I remember because my dad had just put up a grouse and he was kind of stalking it and I was standing there and all of a sudden I looked to my rear and there's this guy in this big hat and I'm looking at him and he's got a badge on and he's just watching us so and when my father you know doesn't get the grouse he comes back and the game warden checks his license and you know as a six-year-old I'm looking at this this big man in this cowboy hat and, you know, we had a discussion after he left. I'm like, dad, who's that? And he's like, uh, that's the game warden. So, and I called him the cowboy in the woods. And at six years old, I wanted to be that cowboy in the woods. So that's kind of been my, my whole tenure as I kind of gravitated my life to that. Uh, learning, trapping, learning. I trapped as a youngster. 
uh, learning everything I could about the woods. I wrote, did a lot of ride-alongs with the game warden, the local game warden, Sergeant Bryant. I would jump in at age 15 all the way till I graduated high school. In my graduation year, he brought a, a trainee, so a first-year hire for New Hampshire fishing game, Todd Bogardis, who retired as a lieutenant as well. He brought Todd over to the house and said, uh, Todd just graduated from uh, SUNY Cobleskill, State University of New York at Cobleskill. And it sounds like a pretty good school, Wayne. So I had talked to Todd, and that's where I ended up going to college with SUNY Cobleskill because Todd had gone there and seemed like a great experience, a great learning experience, and also that Sergeant Bryan was impressed with the quality of individual that the school had put out. I think you, as an individual, you create your own quality prior to college, but certainly uh, Todd was an example of that. Um, so from then, I just uh, I started once I graduated college, I went down to work, worked for the National Park Service and bounced all around the country. So I worked in West Virginia was my first station on the New River, New River Gorge, which isn't far from you. And I was a whitewater ranger and the most adrenaline I've ever had throwing flowing through my veins was in New River Gorge. I learned how to kayak. I ran the Gauley River, which is one of the top 10 navigable bodies in the world, which is in West Virginia, and only runs in September when they do water releases, so they can actually fill up the lake again during the wintertime. So that was uh, probably, that was a great. I went from there to Wisconsin, Lake Superior, where I ran a 25-foot whaler. I stayed on Stockton Island on part of the Apostle Islands National Lakeshore. Stayed out there 10 days with four days off, so I learned operation of vessels on uh, Lake Superior. And then I transferred down to Virginia to Astigue Island, where I worked in Maryland nice. and Virginia, doing a lot of people stuff, a lot of beach stuff, totally different. And then I worked for U.S. Fish and Wildlife as a refuge officer. I went out west to Washington and Oregon at Umatilla Refuges and worked out there as a refuge, refuge officer, which was basically a duck cop all waterfowl. So I learned all my waterfowl. The whole time I'm testing nationwide to become a game warden. So I'm mm -hmm. testing, I tested in Indiana. I tested in uh, Wisconsin. I tested in Virginia. I tested all, all over the country. If there was a game warden test that I knew about, I was driving there, taking their tests. And I started getting good at taking game warden tests, I guess. And I was final in Maine, New Hampshire, and Virginia. And uh, New Hampshire, my home state, called me first and offered me a job and I jumped at it. Um, yeah, I did a 23 year career with New Hampshire fishing game. And during that tenure, I had the opportunity to be on Northwoods law, which uh, is just awesome. I, we just did a podcast with uh, Matt Holmes, who's currently on it and uh, is pretty, a pretty good character for Northwoods law. And, and I think he said it best. It's, it's a bio, it's a documentation of what you do and what your work is. Um, let, let's, let's face it, they, they take all the highlights out and put it into the TV show, but they are actually documenting what you do as a career. And it's just, it's pretty awesome to have that opportunity. Now, as a Lieutenant, you don't get a lot of airtime because you're the boss. Mm -hmm. Um, they hear you on the radio a lot. Uh, my, actually the first time Northwoods law was on in New Hampshire, I was on a lot. And one of my officers was on a lot cause we had a drowning and it was, there was a, it was a thing that they, I think it was a shock and awe thing with the animal planet. They put it on and it was, it was shock and awe even for me. Uh, the family was okay with it. It was a way to memorialize their lost loved one, which I think was actually very true. And I had people call me up and said, Wayne, we just saw the, you know, you on Northwoods Law. Was that fake? <laughs> and I was like, 
no, that's real. They're like, are you kidding me? And it just, it gave my, some of my friends the depth of what I do from mountain rescue to drownings to dealing with poaching. It just, they just never realized what a game warden does in New Hampshire and for the East coast for Maine and us are very, very similar that we have responsible search and rescue OHRVs as well as, you know, wildlife protection. So we're, I call us the police in the woods. Uh, I guess we're the police, we're the fire, we're the EMS in the woods. We have support very much, you know, so much, but we also train for all of those things. So we all are wilderness first responders. Uh, so we can actually give aid if we're the first responder in the woods, which I have been sometimes on serious snowmobile accidents. The first one's up on a search and rescue mission where you actually start getting aid to the victim until somebody else with a higher certification comes in and takes over, which may be hours depending where you are. So it's, it's, it's been a, a pretty cool. I did 23 years with New Hampshire Fishing Game. I love the department. I love my job. And when I retired, I was just like, you know, what am I going to do? They say, do something you love. I did that. You know, so now what am I going to do? Well, podcasting, I want to talk about it. I want to yeah, help please. people about the game warden. Yeah. Yeah. And just uh, share those experiences and then share the other game warden's experience so they can understand what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not out necessarily, we're out to catch the bad guys, but we're out to educate. We're out to be that uh, proactive uh, person to stop prior to violation. Because a lot of it is unintentional violations with fishing game law. They might not have read the digest or something. Um, you know, they go fishing in a closed pond. They fish in a fly fishing only area that's not signed or, or something like that. It may be unintentional, but even unintentional is that we'd like to curve. We like to think of us as the ultimate community policer. And I think the job tends to do that. I always tell this story, Gabriel, that my lieutenant, when I first came on, he asked me if I'd been to the local store to get a coffee. He knew I liked to drink coffee. He's like, asked me if I stopped by and met this farmer. He said, oh, you'll give you a coffee here. And, and I kept thinking, I, I don't have time to meet all these people. I, I'm, I'm a game warden. I got to catch poachers. I got to catch violators. And what he was doing was establishing my community, policing my operation game, wanting me to develop those relationships within a community that would it would propel me into being a good quality game warden. And that's what I did. I started being part of the community, meeting those people, those people that wouldn't pick up a phone. But if I stopped by at coffee and they would tell me if I was going to poach a moose, Wayne, it would be a very small moose. And I'd be like, why? So I can get in the back of the car in the trunk. Really? And what kind of car would you drive? Oh, it'd be an Oldsmobile 1977. I said, what color would it be? Oh, that would be like a tannish color. So here I, here I am getting all this information. He's not ratting anybody else because he wouldn't do that. He's telling me a story and giving me all the particulars. So and that, and that was a pretty good information. And I had that. I had people that would call me. They wouldn't call the, the Operation Game Thief number, but they'd call Wayne and, and let him know what was going on because Wayne won't throw me under the bus. So if I can't make the case without involving people, I won't make the case. So it was becoming part of that community that entrenched me in that. And some people, you know, I think didn't violate because they knew me and other people didn't violate after because of the way I caught them and the way I dealt with them. I had, I had great relationships with guys I arrested. It was just, it's that, that it's that poacher. Yeah. You caught me. Um, yeah, we'll get through this. And then the next time I see him, we're, we're on a good basis. Uh, <laughs> this morning I had, I had breakfast, uh, just a couple 
you know, at least 12 feet away uh, from a guy that I wrote a ticket to for illegal baiting. You know, nice guy, veteran. I knocked on his door and the first words out of his mouth, he's like, you got me. <laughs> you know, and that I appreciate that when, when they just come. Yep, I, I was going to cheat. I cheated and you caught me cheating. So give me my ticket. I'll pay my fine. And on the other hand, you have these people, you know, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And I throw them the picture of them doing it. And they're like, where'd you get that? <laughs> and I'm like, that, that's, <laughs> but that's the difference in, in those types of people. But a game warden, you know, generally deals with 90, 90% of them are decent people. 10%, I would say, are intentional violators that are out there trying to kill everything they can and kill the biggest and the best for bragging rights, whether or to, that filling the freezer thing just doesn't work anymore. I used to fill some wildlife violators freezers because if the freezers are full, they're not out hunting at night and killing to fill their freezer. So, Hey, I call them up and say, I got a roadkill for you, you know, and, and then I'd find someone to pay for something to have butchered if they didn't have enough money. So we would fill their freezer full of deer meat to deer season with roadkill and we're out going to put the deer. You, now, now my freezer's full. I can't put an illegal deer in there. <laughs> so I can't say it's for the meat. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was, it was an awesome career and I, I really enjoyed that part. And I gravitated to the operation game thief side of it. I'm a former president of international wildlife crime stoppers, which put me on that national stage. And I still promote operation game thief because game wardens are only eyes and ears of one person out there. We can't do our job like that. We need everybody that's in the woods to tell us what's wrong so we can focus on that area. So we need people to report, whether it's anonymous or not, whether they want a reward out of it or not. It doesn't matter how we get that information. We want that information to stop that violator. So we're protecting our, our resources. Mm -hmm. So very important to me. Yeah, I, I haven't yeah, I haven't really seen much of poaching on my hand. I have seen people exceed their creel limit and I want to report it. Um, and I think I have maybe once or twice, but it's like, how do you know? I mean, like could what do they have what if they have guns on them or something crazy and you take a picture? It's like sometimes I get a little nervous, um, especially closer to the city, because you don't know like mm -hmm. if you if if they're gonna be that. But I, I think we all have to do better. I mean, I buy my licenses all the time fishing and hunting. I know what's in season. It's very helpful to have like an app on your phone, which I think it's great that more agencies are doing that and uh, kind of modernizing in that respect. But I think all of us who partake in these activities in concert with game wardens have to be better with notifying what is wrong and notifying what's good too. Um, it's really funny. I think uh, my dad and I were fishing last year and uh, these two local um, conservation officers thought we were grandpa and granddaughter, which was really funny. But uh, <laughs> I was like, no, he's my dad. <laughs> funny you think that. And it's a funny writing joke. They didn't mean any harm with it. But like, we know that most of the officers are good. They're trying to protect and serve and make it so that all of us can legally fish and hunt, whether we're catching and releasing fishing or um, hunting you know, and, and they do yeoman's work for protecting different species. In Virginia, we don't have anything, you know, super duper like exotic. We have elk, um, which do get poached a lot of the time because it's a newer herd. It's smaller. Um, I've heard of people like cutting off the heads of elk. Um, I've heard about deer poaching and a few other things and bear poaching as well. Um, but I think most people cooperate and don't partake in it much because they know that the opportunities to hunt are readily available 
and you don't want to get caught because now game wardens can search your social media. They can search where you were. They can know your approximate coordinates. And so um, hunters have to do and anglers have to do a better job of working. It's not snitching. It's, it's for the betterment of everyone because if people poach, they're taking advantage of all these conservation dollars that come in to go into stock programs to rehabilitate certain imperiled species or species that may be languishing. So they're cutting into our opportunities to hunt and fish. And your work, when you guys can respond to pressing matters, instead they have to deal with numbskulls who are not respectful towards wildlife or they're taking more than their creel limit. Mm. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, your misidentification with your father and you just reminded <laughs> me of a funny story about misidentification. I watched this guy uh, bass fishing and he had a blonde girl in, the, in his boat and he was fishing away and they were too far out. So I didn't want to call them in. So I just watched them. So about a week later, the next week I'm watching and here's this guy and this blonde girl again fishing next to a dock. So I swing down, I walk out to the dock and I, I just motion them in and they come in and she doesn't have a fishing license on her. And, and I said to her, I said, well, I said, I'm going to write you a ticket for, you know, not having a fishing license. I said, I could write you for last week when I watched you fish without a fishing license as well. And she looked at him and she goes, who was on your boat last weekend? And you could see this, the fear in his eyes. And apparently it wasn't her. And she was the girlfriend. <laughs> so that, that ensued into a whole different discussion that I, uh, Yes, yes, just totally. Uh, talk about a misidentification, uh, and I put him in hot water really quick. <laughs> Good. Well, no, we weren't doing any fishing violations. We, it was actually free fishing days, and we were helping kids how to uh, fish. And so, they oh, were, cool. so we were we were catching all these different fish, and someone was telling the wardens like, "Oh my gosh, like this, like probably grandpa granddaughter duo is helping kids catch fish, catfish and bass and whatever." So they yes. were intrigued. And they're like, oh, you know, this and this. And I, and I think I corrected them. I said, actually, no, he's my dad. <laughs> he's not my grandpa. <laughs> but it was Those harmless. things happen. I, it was harmless. I, I, I try like, not to step on my feet like that often. <laughs> but hey, you did, you did the poor woman a service, I think, of her knowing. Uh, I probably did. <laughs> yeah. But I wish I could have had that on camera because that was, that was one of those moments that, yeah, yeah said it all. And uh, it wasn't about the ticket at all. It was about who was on his boat last yes. weekend. Yes. So, and then he was stumbling and fumbling and I was like, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> That's so funny. I wrote that ticket and I got out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about the transition from working as a game warden to podcasting, because I remember when we were first talking you talked about how it's been kind of an interesting medium. You've been doing it for a little bit. And I think when I saw, I don't know how exactly I saw the podcast come about, maybe one of the outdoor wires or something. And I was super intrigued. I was like, whoa, Game Warden's getting into podcasting. This is awesome. It had to have been through some certain news service like that. But what led you to do that? And are other Game Wardens starting to replicate your efforts? Because I think you're one of the first to do a Game Warden or former Game Warden hosted podcast. But talk about Warden's Watch and also the Thin Green Line that you co-host with John. Yeah, so Warden's Watch uh, started in March of 2018, and basically, like I said, when I got done retire, when I retired, I felt like I jumped off a cliff and I was waiting to land, and I just didn't know how I was going to land and what I was going to do. And I loved being a game warden, and to lose that disconnect for me, uh, I was having a hard time with it, to be honest with you. And I had just gone to a hunter education 
Uh, we do a banquet every year to honor 100 education instructors, and I'm also a hunter education instructor. So I always make an effort to go there in uniform and to appreciate that. I sit with the teams that I work with, and it's just a, it's an awesome thing to do and appreciate all those guys and their hard work that they do with hunter education. So Jill and her Kelly is her maiden name. She's married, and I'm going to blow it now, but I, I still Jill. But anyway, she's one of our biologists, and she was talking at this hunter education, she's going to kill me for not remembering her real name, her married name, but uh, Jill Kelly. <laughs> Anyways, she's uh, one of our biologists and I'll remember it before we're done. But uh, she talked about Meat Eater in this podcast and asked ah, yes. the hunter education crew who knew what a podcast was. And there was probably 150 people there and maybe 30 people raised their hand and I didn't raise my hand either. So then she started talking about the Meat Eater podcast. So on the way home, I plugged it in and I started listening. And this was probably, yeah, it was probably three months before I retired. And then probably a month into retirement, I'm like, you know, I'm thinking about podcasting. So I started feeling around. I talked to our media guy with the New Hampshire Fishing Game, uh, Jason Philippi, who gave me a lot of information. I talked to our marketing guy, Mark Beauchene, about it and started kicking it around. And uh, Mark Beauchene put me in with uh, Jay Scott, who runs uh, a podcast himself and been doing it for six years, uh, Big Buck Registry. So uh, talking to Jay, and then I, uh, of course, I'm i a team worker, and I think that's why me and John get along so well. We, we've been so much parts of teams that when we both retired, we didn't have a team. So we jumped in together as a team. But before that, I also, one of our outdoor educators, uh, Lindsay Webb's a good friend, and Lindsay and I, I, I bounced it off her and she thought it was a good idea. So I formed a team between Jay Scott and Lindsay Webb and myself and we, we created Warden's Watch. And I remember my first two are just me talking and I had a little teeny recorder and I was in our, our walk-in closet because the acoustics were good there. <laughs> and so I, and just talking to yourself for an hour in a closet, you know, Jay was like, I can't even believe you did that, man. That, that's a skill that a lot of people don't have. So I think you're meant for podcasting or broadcasting. So we'll see where it goes. And, and it's getting, it's gotten so much better since our first few podcasts. Cause if you listen to my first podcast and then you look at episode 47 or, or, or wherever we are now, uh, you develop, you definitely, when you listen to yourself, you could take yourself and you start speaking more deliberately. You try to move the ums, the things like that technology. Oh my goodness. I was drinking through a fire hose with all of this before. And from a game warden to switch over to broadcasting, to start uh, using editing material for broadcasting for, um, you know, uh, I have a mixer now, the road mixer, which has been an awesome part. Um, I also use these headsets now. I don't use mics. I was traveling with mics, mic stands. I wasted so much money on equipment that I don't use now. I got, I got stacks of it that I bought the first year that, and I kept developing, developing, developing. And, you know, it was Bob Mancini. I did an interview with him the other day and he, he starts laughing. He calls me a techie geek. He goes, whoever <laughs> thought Lieutenant Saunders would become a techie geek. And, I, and I'm like, well, it's just part of being a podcaster. You have to know all this stuff and learn all this stuff. And the more I learn, the more independent I come. I still have a producer. And the nice thing about a producer is he's a civilian. And sometimes law enforcement has a way to look at a very narrow vision. And we don't see from the outside. 
And he brings in a perspective from the sportsman, from the outside, the non-law enforcement, which we can bounce off of. And sometimes I I listen to him because I'm seeing things with blinders on as a law enforcement officer of 23 years. And now the civilian tells me, yeah, Wayne, I I don't know if we should do this, you know, because of this, this and this. And I'm like, I never thought about that. (laughs) So it's great to involve those people. And then John and I, I did a podcast with John Way. We were at International Wildlife Crime Stoppers Conference. He was a speaker there. We did a podcast together and we became friendly and I did a second one with him. And he's like, told me, he's like, Wayne, I'm thinking about doing a podcast myself. And I said, well, why don't you just join forces with me? Because you're West Coast, I'm East Coast. You bring a lot in. I bring a lot in as together as a team that I, I think will be a pretty awesome thing, John. And I, I think it is. So when he came in, he brings a lot of uh, people in, a lot of people that he's had relationships over the years that are current. And yeah, they're cutting edge, let's face it. Um, You know, (laughs) when we talked to Jack Carr, who is writing thrillers, who's going to have his thrillers now produced for Amazon Prime. You know, we're talking cutting edge people here, former Navy SEAL, just, uh, just an honor, A, to talk to these people and to get their perspectives. And Jack Carr, he puts Game Warden stuffs in his books. And I'm just, I'm reading his books. He, he references a Game Warden. He references poaching. He's concerned about these issues. And then he brings those out in his books. It's just a, an awesome opportunity. But Warden's Watch was very narrow to Game Wardens and Game Warden's Game Warden stories, and maybe very on the curriff of Game Wardens. And I wanted to keep it that way. A, because when I'm talking to somebody that belongs to an agency, it's not political. It's all about their stories. It's not necessarily bringing in things that may muddy the water for an administrator saying, are oh, you going to be on Warden's Watch podcast? That, uh, yeah, they just talked about, you know, delisting the links from, and, and we disagree with that. So, you know, that's probably something we should shade away from. No, no, I don't want that. But on podcast, I think we can talk about those issues. The Thin Green Line, I think those are open because that's a whole different podcast and it's a whole different venue and we can do anything we want with that. And we bring in a lot of supporters of wildlife like Jack Carr, uh, like Colonel Oliver North. Um, you know, we've just had some dynamic individuals on the Thin Green Line that John's totally responsible for bringing those guys in. Although I, I am responsible for bringing you into our yes, podcast. You are. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you caught my attention early on to Gabriella, just uh, when you tweeted out Warden's Watch, I'm like, who is this girl? And then I started following you and I have a, a great appreciation of what you and what you do. And I, I was like, that, that's awesome because a lot, me and John can't live in, in the area of DC or Virginia. We just, it's just someplace we don't want to be, but we need people like you <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to do that. Yeah. And we need voices like yours and it's so important. So that's why the thin green line came out of it. And we use Warden's Watch, uh, you know, a lot of the social media to keep springing that which I don't know if down the road we'll separate it or not. It's mostly financial reasons we do that because I don't want to start another. I mean, we both do the social media thing and, and you do it too. You know, it can get overwhelming. Uh, it's just a, a lot of lot of work to do that and keep it current. So that that's why we developed that. And it's been awesome. John, you know, we've been working more and more with Warden's Watch too. So we're both doing whatever hunting season. I will tell you, we both love to be in the outdoors this time of year. We're, we're, we're a little thin right now trying to get spots and it's because we want to be outside. We want to be enjoying what we retired for. And to be honest with you, I think podcasting is actually getting the way a little because (laughs) we're we're growing fast. We're, we're getting more and more popular. People are learning about us 
And, but we were like, Hey, you know, we're retired. We're going to kick back. We're going to do a little hunting. So it may not be, you know, every other week for Warden's Watch. We may, we, we, the thin green line is easier to do because we drop one a month on the thin green line. I do two a month currently with Warden's Watch and have been kicking around the idea about cutting back to one, do one Warden's Watch, one thin green line. Uh, I also started teaching college at the White Mountain Community College. So I'm also, I don't like to call myself a professor because I didn't earn that title. I'm an instructor. So I make the kids, I, I do criminal justice, and they actually have a conservation law program there, which is pretty awesome. So I make them call me lieutenant. I earned that one. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to be in law enforcement, whether it's conservation or just normal criminal justice, they're probably going to come in a ranking structure. So I think lieutenant's appropriate, and it starts them on that road. And uh, I think they like it, too, to be honest with you. Um, gives them that toning in as a young adults uh, starting their careers to, to interact with uh, a lieutenant. So, and to call him Lieutenant instead of professor. So, or Wayne's fine too. I, I don't care, but I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying to interacting with uh, young adults that have a, a mindset like I did, you know, 23 years ago, 24, 25 years ago now. So I keep forgetting I've been retired for like two years and it goes so quick. It's crazy. So, and the other thing I retired, oh, go ahead. No, that's amazing. That's, that's important that people can see mm. from someone as seasoned and experienced as you uh, to learn about everything, and especially younger people, they they need to see mm. good examples. Yes, I, I, absolutely. I, I think that, and to have a conservation law program and have a lieutenant that retired, you know, working with you, I just think adds a lot of credibility to the programs. Mm-hmm. And that it, it's been fun too. I, I always liked that. And I was in you know hunter education, operation game thief, marketing. Uh, Fishing game is what I did. Marketing operation game thieves, trying to get those that information in is what I did. So it's yeah, it's it's been just an extension of that. I, I think um, I am learning a lot too. I'm you know I have to this prepping for the you know teaching is just crazy, and that's mm-hmm. been part of my fall too. And I get you know new classes and I'm trying to structure them. And wow, it's been a lot of work this fall. I will say that. Hopefully. When I get things canned, it'll be a little easier to teach, but I am creating new curriculum and I'm doing it my way too, which is important, I think. And I think the kids are liking it because one thing I learned is I I wasn't your traditional learner. I had all kinds of different ways I learned and mostly by communication. So I'm using a lot of videos, uh, a lot of special guests, you know, people that come into my class and actually talk. We just had uh, Bill uh, Bodner. DEA LA, who's going to be on our Thin Green Line podcast this next month. But when we interviewed him, like, Bill, would you be interested in talking to my class? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, to get a, a high level guy like that to the White Mountains of New Hampshire, to a small community college is, is incredible. It's incredible that he took his time to talk to these students and, and they feel that too. They're like, that, that, was, that was awesome to, to have that happen. Dr. Jason Piccolo, the same way. Uh, came in and had a chat with my class and, and talked about human trafficking. And he's writing a book on that. It's just, you know, where do you get these, <laughs> where do you get this? It's it's just, a, it's just great. And I think the kids enjoy that and uh, I've been bringing a lot to it. So, and it's been fun and that's, I got to have fun or I'm doing something wrong. If I'm not having fun, I'm, I'm out of it. So, and that's the way podcasting is. I, I just really enjoy talking with my brothers and sisters of conservation law, uh, enjoying those people that support that as well as contribute to it. One one of my goals with podcasting, the thin green line and everything is to these nonprofit wildlife 
um, individuals like Ducks Unlimited, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, which currently I want to get them involved with International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. That's that's one of my goals is if you look at these pie charts that all these uh, nonprofits that raise money to do it, they, they, they buy so much land, they put so much into the biology of it, but the law enforcement isn't in there. And our state's budgets are dropping like rocks, especially in the era of COVID. And we need to put a law enforcement aspect in there. And I think by joining forces with International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, they can do that. And Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has actually done that. So they are a contributor and a sponsor of International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, which is awesome. I want to see all these, the Ducks Unlimited, the, the Grouse Society, the Pheasants Forever. Hey, you know, we want to be part of International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. We want that label is that we help stop wildlife crime. And I want them to hear me say that I want them to know that that's what you guys should be doing along with all the other good stuff you're doing because you can make all the rules you want. You can biologize. I made up that word. I love it. You can (laughs) biologize all you want. You can buy all the land you want. If there's no enforcement, you've just failed. You just failed with everything you've done. You've failed. Do the States contribute? Absolutely. They do. But how about you buy some time? You know, hey, uh, we got some land here. We'll, we'll pay some overtime shifts uh, to do this, or we'll do this or that, or we can help fund this way or that way, or, you know, decoys. There's all kinds of things. And International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, most of the states are involved with them as agency affiliations. So it's, it's great. So as a New Hampshire representative for Operation Game Thief, I, uh, I was a member of, opera, of the International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. And then I worked through their board and ended as their president. So I just, uh, I got a passion about that. I, I, I hope it's because these wildlife uh, nonprofits aren't aware of it and uh, are aware of what they're doing. They're doing great things. They're doing awesome things. They can just do a little bit more or shave a little more because you can preserve all the land you want. You can biologize all you want. Without law enforcement, you've done nothing. If you got a bunch of dead ducks, <laughs> oh no, you know, or... So that, 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 there's, there's my uh, standing on my stool. Uh, but I, I think I'm right. And I think, uh, you know, through getting that message out to the right people, they're going to say, yeah, absolutely. When we do our pie chart, this is how much we contribute to, you know, preserving land. This is how much we can, tr- can contribute to biologizing. And here's what we do to law enforcement. We contribute to International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. And we do so much every year. And they distribute it where it's necessary. So, and, and part of it's, you know, marketing, getting the words out and telling our stories of success and our failures. Uh, this next one, uh, Idaho with Chris Wright, uh, the deputy uh, law enforcement uh, chief out there. It's, uh, yeah, he's, he, he's got a bad story, horrible story. Mm. Um, he stopped the violations, but, you know, he wasn't happy with the case. I, I felt for him, you know, when you do a big case like this and you come up with very little, it, it hurts. It hurts. The, the, the worst, the cases I remember the most are the ones I didn't make. Mm. It, it just, it sticks with me. I can tell you the moose cases down to the details of the cases I didn't make and the efforts that I put into that to make those cases and, and squeeze as much information as I could and get, try to get a lead and never got a lead on it. So those are the cases mm. that I remember the most is the ones I didn't make. That's just, uh, and, and I can t- tell as, uh, as a warden that it, when you have a case that you could have done so much more with and just certain things happen that you couldn't, you know, people need to hear that too. And they need to hear the reasons why. 
because sometimes it's courts, sometimes it's, uh, you know, lack of resources. There's so many reasons why we don't make the cases. And then they, you know, you hear the criticism, well, they should have got a lot more out of that. There's reasons why we didn't. There's reason why we make pleas is maybe we have a court that isn't fishing game friendly, that they don't think that wildlife is a big deal. They deal with murders, rapes, child abuse, and then you come in with a bunch of dead deer. And the judge just hit a deer on the way to court with his car. You know, that could, in, that, that could influence the whole thing. And some judges don't think wildlife's a big deal. Other judges think wildlife's a big deal. And that's awesome when you have a judge like that who, when you walk into their court, they put wildlife crime on the same level as they do murders and rapes and everything else. It's just as important because it affects all of us. And it's something that gets taken away for a long period of time. When you shoot that big buck, it takes years to replace that if you took it illegally. Mm-hmm. It just takes years. You shoot that doe that probably has two fawns in it. So you just took three deer out of the whole the whole mix and they're not going to be producing. So you've actually reduced the population. Fishing game agencies across the nation take so much information into what we should take for a healthy population. So, and they, they, they figure they get so many tags out there, they're probably only going to fill 30% of the tags. They, they figure that all in. What they don't figure, or they actually throw a poaching, usually a poaching number in there so they know how much that they're not detecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and we really don't know. There was a study done in Arizona in the 70s where they actually put out what were crime scenes and see how many of those were reported. And it was like 1%. 1% of the, they, they fudged Crazy. the poaching scenes in areas where people would see them and locate them and then tracked how many calls they got related to those scenes. 1%. Think about that. If we're catching 1% of the poaching, it, it, it just blows my mind. And, and it just, and all the work that all these guys and girls do, and all these guys and women, I got corrected the other day. I'm sorry. So (laughs) I'm not fragile. (laughs) I can handle those words. You're good. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, the, the, the law enforcement people that are out there trying to do their job, I mean, that, that, that hurts. And the guys that I know and the guys that I work with work very, very hard to, to stop that. And to think we're only catching 1% just, uh, is horrible. (laughs) It's horrible. But well, maybe more positively, could you speak to, if uh, people in New Hampshire are starting to hunt and fish more, because I know with COVID, we've seen actually a spike of fishing licenses here in Virginia. I think in many states we've seen, I think one good thing to come from this is kind of people's return to nature, or maybe their first time discovering it altogether. But have you observed that at all in New Hampshire and in your neck of the woods at all? That's, that's kind of a silver lining. So this kind of mess that we're in right now. Absolutely. I just, uh, I, I did a, I was speaking at the South, my first virtual conference at the Southwest Fishers and Wildlife Association conference, first virtual one. And I, they don't know what to do because there's been such a spike nationwide. They want to retain these people. They want, mm-hmm. there's a jump into the outdoors, New Hampshire, Maine, you name it. I think it's nationwide. People are reconnecting because their traditional things were taken away from them. And, and what do we do? We go, well, let's go outdoors. Let's, let's go for a hike. Let's go fishing. Let's go hunting. And then there's a renewing to self-sustaining because they're like, 
holy moly, what happens? COVID takes over and we have to self-sustain. Uh, one of our thin green lines, one of our first ones, Paul Rella, the prepper. Uh, wicked, cool information about being prepared. And, you know, I got so many confidence that it's the first do, non-doomsday podcast people have heard, that it wasn't all about the end of the world and this and that. It was about being prepared, which he's a former Marine, and that's that's their mo- you know, or that's that's what he was. That's that's how he thinks. This is this is how we're prepared. If this scenario happens, that scenario happens, that scenario, he's ready. So, and that's just a great thing to to know. Canning, you know, my mother or my my mother couldn't find canning jars this year. Uh, yeast to bake bread that that was off the shelves. The, these are things that are never out. As a matter of fact, they're you got to check the date because they've been sitting there so long. Oh my! People are reconnecting to differences and they're fleeing the cities. They're going to more rural. The rural people are going even more rural. Uh, people are moving out of the cities. I know people that have done this that had, you know, were working in Brooklyn. As soon as COVID hit, they went to in-laws, stayed there. They're selling their places in Brooklyn and they are moving to more remote. They think New Jersey's more remote, but, and for them it is. <laughs> they, they don't know remote <laughs> exactly but from the manhattan uh brooklyn to all the way to uh you know new jersey that that's that's remote <laughs> that's so but those people that are living in new jersey are now moving to pennsylvania or virginia or they that that's the trend is tripping out and out and out we're seeing spike in real estate around me um you know it's just and i think that's a good thing as long as I hope they don't bring, they remember the reasons they moved exactly. and don't bring those with them Yeah, because this is the reason we lived here and yeah. we like it this yeah. way, but when they want their garbage picked up and they want this and they want that, 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 that just isn't why we live here. So come here, enjoy what we enjoy and hunt and fish, learn how to process uh, game, learn how to process fish, how to, you know, grow a garden, how to can that stuff, how to do all those, those types of things. Um, I think it's awesome. I think it's reconnecting to the outdoors. I think it's reconnecting to the soul of America. What made us great, uh, muzzleloader season's coming up. And I love that the look of the muzzleloader because it reminds me of the frontier and those skills, a lot of them are lost. A lot of them are lost to me. And I, I, I know a significant about how to survive, but when you talk about stretching out hides and having to use those hides as clothing, mm-hmm. I mean, tell that to somebody that that may happen. And, and it's just, it's, it's crazy what it could revert to, but if you're prepared, you won't. And then, and we have a great country too. We have a great foundation. We have a great ammo. That's one thing. I mean, you can't go buy ammo right now. Everybody no. is, it's cleaned out. So thank have you goodness seen- I usually have a stockpile. <laughs> I mean, have, have many, cause I mean, I've, I've followed the trends too. Cause I, I focus a lot on what happens in the firearm industry. Obviously mm. they were made essential businesses under the defense protection act, uh, production act, excuse me. And, uh, like, yeah, you're right. You can't buy stuff. There's backlog for firearms purchases. Ammo is in short supply and you see a huge chunk of these. I don't know what the number is now. I think by the end of the year, they're approximating like 20 million people, um, including, previous gun owners and new gun owners, they say at least 5 million are new, never purchased a gun before for self-defense reasons. And actually people don't talk about this much, but I love, I've talked about this in the Hill paper um, and some other magazines, some non-endemic publications, and it got a lot of buzz, but people don't know that um, guns and ammo, and I make this argument, and I know many game wardens cannot really 
step into the gun debate, but I think privately many, and now that you're retired, you could probably speak to this more so, mm -hmm. but, but many of them worry that if you have gun control, you're going to see this diminishment of conservation dollars that largely come from guns and ammo. People don't know that Pittman Robertson funds actually primarily fund wetlands conservation, habitat restoration efforts, hunter's education. Um, and and I, I don't know percentage wise how much we're going to get a boost from it. And if we're able to, like you say, retain retain these people. But I think um, this this time that we're in, we are going to see a little bit of a boost to conservation dollars. And especially with people privately buying firearms more so. And hopefully it reflects their votes too um, as well, because I think people have to know, like you should know where the politicians stand on whether or not you're allowed to protect yourself or whether or not you're allowed to own a certain firearm. And I think Air-15s get often um, badgered for no reason. I'm When I go to Wyoming after this podcast episode airs, I'm going to be hunting suppressed with a long rifle, probably, I think it's the Air-10 or Air-15 platform. I forget exactly what, but I've shot those and they're really fun. And women like myself like to shoot from them recreationally or for home defense too. There's a lot of um, misconceptions about that as well. And you can hunt, I know this is a wider debate, but people always say like, well, you should only hunt like bow. You shouldn't hunt this long rifle or you should hunt muzzleloader and you shouldn't hunt this. And I'm like, if people are doing it legally and things are in season, who are you to tell someone what method they are to hunt? Because that limits so many people from potentially wanting to become hunters because I think there's an East versus West kind of dynamic um, to this too, but also like a little bit of elitism versus regular Joe Blow um, attitudes about bow hunting to me. I would like to try it one day, but I'm like, there's too many barriers to entry. I have to get certification in Virginia to do it. It's not like you buy the license and you can go do it. To participate in our archery program, you have to get certified. And I'm like, I have to strength train for that. It's not easy. Like I first need to master rifle hunting and, and I'm speaking as an adult onset hunter, but someone who's fished for most of my life. So I'm not, everyone thinks like, are you new to all these outdoor activities? And no, I'm not. I've been fishing for much of my life, hiking, nature, all that. But hunting I, and guns, I started early in my adult life and, and hunting four years ago. Um, so it's, and, and that's what I tell people. And I'm probably going to create some videos or something or more podcasts about this. But I think a lot of people feel like when they come in, they have to do something like what Steven Ranella does or like what some of these professionals do. And I tell people, no, you don't. You can hunt with an AR-15. You can hunt suppressed. Um, I don't know about hunting handgun. I know people who hunt with handguns. I think Jana, um, she does coyote hunting with handguns, which is allowed, I think, out West. And some people may think that, oh my gosh, that's cruel and unusual. But if you're hunting predators and that's allowed, I don't see a problem with it if it's in a legal context. But um, something I hope people take away is you don't need to feel pressure to hunt one style. Uh, you can easily find mentors. For me, I was, I've been lucky like here in the DC metro area, like we are close to DC, but if I go like an hour and a half away, I'm in prime hunting real estate or within 30 minutes, I can go trout fishing, not too far or, or to get really good trout fishing to go like an hour, hour and a half. Uh, but we have some urban fisheries that are stocked, catch and release, delayed harvest streams. Um, but I, I tell people like, it's a great time to learn how to hunt. I'll give you tips but there are many mentors available uh, to do it. And it's an exciting time. Um, you don't have to be wholly dependent on wild game meat. It's really hard to like make up much of your diet on wild game meat. But with these meat shortages, if you remember early on in the pandemic, people were like, what do I do? Because beef is so overpriced. There's a short supply of it. I need to do this. So that's kind of what's on my mind. Is that kind of something you, you encourage people who are new to, to consider as well? 
Absolutely. And I think hunters are their worst enemies because they criticize another type of hunting. Hunting is hunting and a hunter is a hunter, whether you bow hunt, whether you gun hunt, you know, how you do it. One of the biggest criticisms is dog hunting and, you know, with bear dogs. And I'm like, have you ever done it? And the, the people that are criticizing it, well, no, it just seems like it's unfair to chase the bear up the tree. I said, experience it before you say that, please. It's one of the hardest hunts I've ever done. You have to be physically in shape to to keep up with these dogs. They usually tree remotely. It it is intense. And these guys and girls, because Kelly's one of my friends is is as much into bear hunting as her husband is. um, They love their dogs more than they love the bears. And those dogs love to run bears because that's what they were bred to do. And they're happiest doing what they are bred to do. And it's just, it's interesting that, you know, hunters, well, don't hunt, uh, I can't hunt with dogs. That's, that's unfair. Bird hunting with dogs. You know, it just, it, it, we're our own worst enemies. How about if it's hunting and it's legal, you support it. Mm-hmm. And don't criticize somebody else in their hunting practices. And that's, that, that's my, cause yeah, well, let's start off. Let's start off with a gun. Cause it's easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right. Absolutely. Black guns, bad. They're not bad. They are just a different platform. They, and they are very versatile it's it's awesome the ammo is very available you know for for some of them they're changing their their ammo so they can do perform they can be suppressed there's so many things you can do with that ar platform it's unbelievable and that's what makes it so popular is the versatility of it it's not necessarily the look it doesn't look like a traditional gun but it's highly accurate it's highly versatile whether it's close whether it's far it's unbelievable that that's why it is what it is we, we took it from the military, absolutely. We built off of that, and that's what gives it that persona. But it's not that persona why it's used. It's the versatility yeah. and, and the applications. It, it, it's definitely so. But I definitely criticized, you know, I can see hunters criticizing. And I try to, you know, as a game warden, I tried to, to bring in that other aspect of it, you know. So, hey, have you ever done that? You know, try it before you criticize it and say how easy it is to, right. to shoot a bear out of a tree after you're out of breath because you just ran up a mountain. And, oh, yeah, you got to run down that mountain again because the bear just ran down. And then you run up again. And one time I went three times up this mountain. And oh, I'll tell yeah. you what, I was glad when they lost the bear because I was done. I was done. <laughs> It was more exercise than I had done in six months. And I was like, this is crazy. And then people start to criticize it. Oh, it's easy. Oh, that's, that's, it's one of the hardest hunting I've ever done. So get out there and do it before you have an opinion of things, especially bow hunting. It's such a learning experience for me because I didn't start bow hunting until uh, probably early twenties, but I learned that taught me so much to be patient it taught me to be a better hunter with a gun. It taught me to take a good shot because you only have one shot. And it, it just, it, it made me, because when I saw that deer coming in, I got excited just like I would with a gun. But instead of jumping on it, I had to watch that deer because it wasn't in range. I just came back from New York. I had an eight pointer, nice eight pointer, 50 yards out. I'm good with my bow to 30. I had all my 30 you know, yard marks already and he just wouldn't come. And talk about a frustrating, but first exciting when you see, oh, that's a buck. Oh, is he coming this way? Oh, he's coming, starting to come this way. Oh, he's going back the other way. It brings your emotions up and down, but it settles you too. You don't, that initial excitement comes and then it goes. And then you start watching that deer and you start watching their behavior. Oh, he's feeding. Oh, he's making a scrape. Well, he's pretty focused on that. I mean, how long is it going to take him? I've got, you know, 15 more minutes before it's, I can't shoot anymore. Come on, we got to get with this. So should I grunt? 
Should I try bleeding? Should I try something like, you know, it's just all these things go through your head and that type of hunting makes you a better hunter and it gives you a little more challenge, especially if you start doing things and you start becoming good at them, you give yourself another challenge if you're like me and I'm sure like you too, you just build off of it. The next thing, the next thing, oh, I haven't done that. I'd like to try that. And yes, and you, the things you hit, yes, strength development. Absolutely. For older people, you know, I've seen them gravitate to crossbows. I'm great with that. Oh, I like crossbows. As a game warden. Yes. As a game <laughs> warden, I didn't like crossbows because I saw them used in poaching a lot. So as soon as I saw somebody with a crossbow, I just instantly start my investigation process. Um, windows on vans, vans are prevalently used uh, for poaching sometimes. And we would look for, uh, it would be the driver's side uh, mirror. Because sometimes when a crossbow re- recoils, it'll break that mirror. So if I saw a crossbow in a van, I would look for a broken a mirror on the driver's side because if you're oh shooting out the driver's side, generally they're breaking that mirror. And then putting all those things together, now I've identified a poacher because they're probably using it at night. It's quiet per se. They're still kind of loud compared to a bow, but they're quiet. They're not a gunshot and they're effective. And they were a poacher's tool. That's why I didn't like them. Mm-hmm. Um, also a traditional archer, but guess what? I just bought a crossbow. My shoulders are darting to dwindle. Uh, I've got some injuries that are causing issues. And uh, it's going to be time for me to move on very, very shortly here to that next step. And now crossbows have become so popular that I can't tell you that everybody owns one as a poacher anymore. Because my dad got one when he got older. He couldn't pull his bow back anymore. Uh, so he, I got him a crossbow because he wouldn't buy it on his own because I was so negative about him at the time. <laughs> so... My perception has changed, but I had that perception as a game warden and the problems I had with them. And, you know, it's hard not to have those bias when you deal with things in and out. And it's hard to change that as things change. But I I like to think I'm a little progressive. And that's why having a producer that's totally non-related to law enforcement brings that uh, balance, I think, to our podcasts for me and John to have somebody that's on the outside looking in that's part of a hunting community that can actually weigh in. It's just, uh, I I think it brings us balance. Yeah, we've covered so much ground in this episode. (laughs) It's been so much fun to talk. I really hope you, John, and I can meet at some point. I know with all these different uh, restrictions and whatnot. I don't know if any in-person stuff is happening. I saw they canceled a few hunting shows. I don't know if they're canceling shot show. I'm not going next year just because winter time, like I try to avoid travel now and I don't have business there this year, but I always get invited. I get invited to range day for media work, um, but hopefully nice. we can all get together at some point. I would love to sit down with you guys in person, uh, converse Absolutely. more, maybe plot ways of how we can work together, but Wayne, where can everyone connect with you and follow the podcast and engage with you? Well, wardenswatch.com on the internet, but we're also on Facebook, Warden's Watch Podcast, uh, Instagram, Warden's Watch Podcast. Uh, you know, we're on all the podcast platforms, Apple, Google Podcasts, um, Radio Public, uh, Spotify. So the Warden's Watch Podcast is out there. And, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of great stories from Game Wardens, a lot of success stories, so, some non-successes as well. But you really get a feel for your wildlife officers and their passion for their job and their passion for what they do. Uh, and I, I was, I went to a homicide school once and I went with a whole bunch of detectives and everything. And the first day of class, I said, every time a deer or a moose is poached, it's a homicide. Well, I still take flack for that today because I, I elevated that to it, but that's the passion that your game wardens 
have for protection. We, we see it on that level and we want to protect that resource mm-hmm. and we want to manage that resource. So I, I'd say most of us, I'm not going to swear everybody, we support the management tool of hunting and a lot of us participate in it. A lot of us don't participate in it because it's like eating the same meal all the time and then you go out and do it. I, I, the, the days I hunted, I never started in the AM because as a game warden, I started so early. I was so tired on my days off from working mornings and nights. I would go out, you know, midway through the day. I would sleep in those days. But as a game warden being out there, I think you knew the more productive areas to hunt. So whenever I hear from somebody else, I could never be a game warden because you're the you're hunting and fishing. I said, you just tone, you you just improve where you hunt because you're always out there. You always know where there's a good area to hunt and you know, you know where the game is. That's, that's your job. So it's just a, it's an excellent thing to talk nationwide with these guys and ladies and women that do this job and the passion that they have for it and the passion they want to share with everybody that listens. And, you know, the passion that the sporting public has for the, for us, because we're out there protecting their natural resources and certainly is reflected with Lone Star law, Northwoods law, game wardens on the outdoor channel. Um, just, uh, it's certainly reflected. I mean, the, the stats for Northwoods law were the second show on animal planet. Number two, wow. I mean, that's pretty, we, They've increased their social media 140% with Northwoods Law. I mean, Incredible. they get some huge, huge stats on, on us. So it's pretty exciting. And that just tells me there's a lot of people out there that support game wardens and our mission, sporting and non-sporting. Um, and, and that's been a venue for education as well to, to reach some of these people that may love the show and love saving animals about hunting and why we hunt, about fishing and why we fish and, and, so they can understand the biology behind it, mm-hmm. their tradition behind it, um, and, and, and the passion. We just we have biologists that actually look into this stuff and they give us, hey, we should take this percentage to have a healthy population. So that's why we use the tool of hunting to do that. And when populations get out of whack, you can actually see it because disease moves in. Right. Would you rather have a, a, an animal hunted and, and taken and valued or a disease wipe them out and have them die a miserable death? It's just, a, it's an easy choice for me. I just, and, and to provide that information to people that don't obviously get this information a lot, I think it's priceless. It's priceless. And I'm, I'm just glad those shows are doing so good. And I appreciate every one of the guys that's on there and appreciate everybody that does this job. And that's what I want to do. I want to promote their job and why they do it. That's what Warden's Watch and the Thin Green Line about is bringing people into that as well. So, and John and I have the same vision. We're the, we're the same people. Game Wardens, we're all cut from the same cloth. We're just in different areas. So it's, it's awesome. Thank you for what you do because, yeah, we can't do that. We, we, we can't do what you do. And I, I really appreciate your support from the very beginning of Warden's Watch to, to chime in there and, and put Warden's Watch out there and, uh, yeah, share, share my passion. And I, I certainly want to share yours. Absolutely. Yeah, you definitely have a lot of passion. And I think my listeners are going to really like this episode, too. So, no, it's, it, you know, it's, I'm surprised Zoom didn't kick us out. So it's very good that they were able to get all of our recording because I don't have the premium plan, but it's okay. Oh, I should have called you. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it let me run through. It's all good. No, no. Yeah. no this, this is, yeah. I, I so appreciate you coming on, Wayne, and this has been a lot of fun. And I, I really appreciate you taking time to speak with me. Anytime, Gabriella. That was probably one of our longer episodes to date, but Wayne 
is a good storyteller. He has a lot to share and it would be so improper of me to cut him off or to prevent him from speaking his mind. I think that's why podcasts exist. They exist to offer longer speaking times. I would never ever be in Joe Rogan territory or Stephen Ronella territory guys, because I can't talk for three hours and I don't want to bore you guys with length times like that. Even an hour and a half is stretching it too much, but we try to keep things between 40 minutes to like an hour if we have to go that deep into conversation. But I didn't want to take away from anything. And I really thought Wayne's thoughts were invaluable and they needed to be heard in their full and complete uh, manner. Now, if you like this podcast, you've been listening, you found us through both John or Wayne or from listening to my episode with Christy Nome, Governor Christy Nome, make sure you subscribe and leave us some reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts. That goes a long way with kind of seeing the barometer, seeing the scope of our podcast reach more so subscribes and downloads actually give me a bigger picture and give podcasters a bigger picture as to how the show is being received. But a review can go a long way. If you want to show some support for the podcast, that's a great way to do it. Make sure you are following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement. I'm going to be heading to Wyoming this week And I'm going to be interviewing and mingling with a lot of really cool people in the outdoor industry. I'm not going to give away who exactly I'm talking to, but you're going to be seeing a lot of interviews probably over the course of two weeks with some really upstanding outdoor folks. And they're pretty well known. That's one teaser I can give you guys. They're really well known in their sectors and it's going to be really cool to talk to them after just hearing so much, watching their work, things of that sort. I'm going to have a lot of video content too. So you guys got to stay out. You guys have to stay on the lookout for that. Any and all pushing of videos, podcasts, any type of content that comes from this Wyoming trip, I'd be super grateful. But one potential or I would say recurring guest, return guest, you can expect hopefully, and I I think this is correct because her chief of staff is going to be at the trip, but I think we're going to actually be able to sit down with first lady of Wyoming, Jenny Gordon, for real in the flesh this time because we're going to be contributing to her food program her wild food program so that's going to be really cool i think that's at least one guest i can kind of tease for you guys if she is coming which i believe she is and then i'm going to try to follow up with some lawmakers i was promising to bring on but just because of their busy schedules obviously that couldn't work out but we're going to try to sit down with senator dan sullivan who i believe is expected to when he just received some last minute endorsements from the alaska major paper there um that's not really a contest that people really have to worry about we're gonna i think speak to marcia blackburn senator from tennessee about some gun and conservation issues i'm going to be interviewing her for her new book which is unrelated to the podcast but i think you can expect her to come on as well on the podcast that should be in the coming weeks i'm going to try to sit down with some more lawmakers hopefully some congressmen congresswomen elect to some python hunters female python hunters i was connected to them from friend of the show travis thompson host of cast and blast podcast so we're going to try to talk to some python hunters if and when I'm able to travel again for my Conservation Nation series, which is 
sponsored by C-Fact, who also sponsors this podcast. We're going to talk to some Florida folks and some others. I think I'm going to have a better idea as to when we can reboot the series, hopefully post-COVID, post-election. But we're going to have more extended interviews in that type of capacity. But more politicians, more storytellers, more individuals, more monologues. Uh, If we get to keep the administration, I will... Try to get some in-depth looks into that and forecast kind of what to expect with the continuation of the Trump administration. If, heaven forbid, Biden wins, I will use this podcast to be on the attack and criticize their policies, rightfully so. I think it's going to be problematic. I think the Trump administration, for all intents and purposes, has done a lot to empower hunters and anglers. And if they were to be ousted i think a lot of the progress will be rolled back unfortunately so let's pray for a continuation i mean even if you don't agree with that um i think it'll be interesting to see that sportsmen and sportswomen will have their voices continued should trump prevail if that's not the case we're going to use this podcast to sound the alarm and be aggressive because I'm not going to take any prisoners when it comes to this type of stuff, this tomfoolery that I'm expecting to come from a Biden administration. And if they do good stuff, maybe we'll praise them. But I'm not expecting, I'm kind of having low confidence given just their pushes for gun control and this preservationist environmentalist viewpoint. So we'll see what happens. Okay, thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for some episodes from Wyoming. Happy Election Day. Stay the course, stay the path. Make sure you voted, made your voice heard, regardless of who you support for. And uh, we'll talk soon. Subscribe, leave some reviews, download, encourage your friends to find us, and send some guest suggestions. I would love to hear who you'd like for me to talk to here on the podcast.